Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Welcome to The Open Door, a show based on the words in Revelation, I have left an open door before you, which no one can close. This is WCAT Radio's longest-running show which opened the door to the radio station in October 2016. It's currently offered by Jim Hanink, Mario Ramos-Reyes and friends, and remains open to the love of God in its call to build a culture of life and a just social order through the panel's discussion of the Catholic social teaching principles of solidarity, subsidiarity, and economic democracy. The Open Door also explores nonviolence, distributism, and communitarianism. So join us at The Open Door, where you too can be part of the conversation. Welcome to The Open Door. Jim Hanning here with co-host Mario Ramos-Reyes. Joining us, our good friend Christopher Zender. Today's special guest is Professor Peter Redpath. He is the CEO of the Aquinas School of Leadership, Management, and Organizational Development. Our topic is the role of public philosophy. Let's begin in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created and you will renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. Lord, by the light of the Holy Spirit, you have taught the hearts of your faithful. In the same Spirit, help us to relish what is right and always rejoice in your consolation. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. It seems to us and um, Peter Redpath has once again underscored this in a recent paper of his, that we can't make much sense unless we know what it is that we're talking about. So I'm going to begin by asking Peter to tell us what public philosophy is. Uh, Thanks very much, Jim. Uh, To begin, though, I'd like to uh, remember our our friends and colleagues that are involved in pro-life marches today, especially uh, those who might be in D.C., uh, and uh, send out uh, a uh, special regard to my friend uh, from Staten Island, uh, Father Frank Pavone, for all the good work he's done uh, over the many decades in that movement. Yes. Indefatigable. Uh, Yes, that's a good example of public philosophy and practice. Uh, and, and, as, and as far as, as uh, know, knowing precisely what you're talking about, um, I, I became aware of this um, just a couple of years ago, uh, how, how crucial it is when I was reflecting on a an observation that the French historian of philosophy and philosopher 
uh, and specialist in Christian philosophy, Etienne Gilson, uh, had said um, a remark he had made uh, uh, related to mistakes in philosophy, and he said that most philosophical mistakes start from badly framed questions. Uh, and for years I thought that was, that was right until I realized, now there's something even worse than that uh, related to philosophical questions and pretty much every question we ask, philosophical or none. And that's precisely not knowing what you're talking about in the sense of not knowing that whenever we're engaged in any kind of conversation, we're, we're, in, we're talking within the context of a real genus. Huh? That is, we have to give a definition of what we're, of, uh, you know, uh, precisely what we're understanding ourselves to be thinking about and speaking about. Uh, and the biggest mistake is not to know the genus that we happen to be in. Right. Um, uh, we we uh, and and th- the way we should be speaking about it. And for example, um, to uh, for a uh, an architect uh, to uh, to be mistaken about an understanding of first principles. What what is the nature of architecture? What is what is this subject or the subject genus? What I what I like to call an organization. Huh? What is this organization, uh, uh, this organizational whole about which we're talking that we're trying to analyze, break down into its parts? Um, if if the architect thinks, for example, that the principles of architecture are actually the principles of grammar, uh, and that by applying the principles of grammar to building bridges, you're going to build good, good bridges. Uh, we're, not much progress uh, is going to be made. In fact, no progress except accidentally will be made in architecture, and a lot of damage will be done. Uh, and so I, I, uh, I started to, to focus on that and then realized that in relationship to that, if you want to do philosophy, you can't do it. Uh, with any kind of qualitative perfection for any extensive period of time without doing it as part of a cultural enterprise. Uh, And that cultural enterprise has to start with a receptivity within some general population to support philosophical activity uh, uh, through... um, Habits, cultural habits uh, that promote justice and prudence. A a, pe- a people that is not just, that does not promote both commutative justice and distributive justice, uh, uh, and is not prudent. Can't cooperate. <laughs> and if you if you can't cooperate create harmonious harmonious activity you can't produce peace within social social activity and without the peace you can't have leisure and without the the leisure you can't have philosophy so you have to you have know, a public philosophy Peter, our, our friend Christopher Zender in the middle of a <clears throat> discussion of terrorism uh said 
recently, wrote recently, well, we're not going to go anywhere until we know what terrorism is. Uh, so, Christopher, I would think that you would be sympathetic to what Peter's saying now about defining what we're talking about and uh, defining it with a view to who's doing the talking. You know, who's doing the talking and what we're talking about. I mean, that's, I, I found, especially on the Internet, the you know, the center of all intellectual activity today, that people are talking past each other continually because they're talking about different things, or they're not making clear exactly what they mean by their words. And, and, and the conversations will go on. I've been involved in some of these conversations, and I suddenly realize, well, we're not, we're not agreeing anymore. We're not, we're not, we don't even have this, we don't mean the same thing by the same terms. So that, that defining, you know, uh, of one's terms begin with is absolutely important. But what doesn't necessarily lead to any agreement, but at least make it clarifies what we're actually talking about. Well, well, Peter, does this problem of clarification take us right back to the beginning of Western philosophy, or close close there too? Uh, wasn't Socrates trying to get clarification and failing to get clarification? Wasn't he led to his execution? Uh, yes, certainly it is. It's it's all part of that Socratic tradition, and it really comes to be uh, codified, more or less, put in, put into a a um, uh, a precise format by Aristotle. When when Aristotle starts any of his works, he he has a generic method. He starts with defining its subject his subject matter, right? and. Uh, uh, explaining explaining it in terms of being a subject of wonder because philosophy starts philosophical activity for Aristotle and uh, it it and it, had, it has its beginnings even before that as uh, it, even with the poets to to some extent philosophy was considered to be a psychological activity. Uh, it's considered to be a habit of the soul. It's identified with science. Um, I identify it even today with science. I think that the 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 the, the biggest mistake that had, has been made in modern uh, intellectual history has been the separation of of, of philosophy and science, uh, and science and wisdom, as as Marit, Jacques Maritain had understood, had recognized. Um, the uh, uh, for uh, for Aristotle, a, a wonder uh, uh, pursues causes, uh, causes being first principles, huh? and uh, uh, these these first principles are what we know best about the subject about which we're talking, right? we're we're conversing. Uh, Art Mario, I suppose. I know it's early, but suppose you found yourself 10 minutes from now in Caracas, in Venezuela, and uh, suppose, mirabile dictu, uh, everyone was listening to you. Uh, what would you begin by trying to clarify? What would you begin to try to to uh, make sense out of a public discourse that has become totally entangled. 
Well, uh, the question is very... Very question, Mario. Yeah, it's very difficult, but this is what I think about what I just heard. If I were a citizen, even in the U.S. here, or in Caracas, anywhere, when I listen to you talk about first principles, Socrates, Aristotle, and things of that nature, I wonder what you're talking about. Those uh, issues uh, don't, don't touch my, the situation in which I'm in. And what I need now, if I'm a citizen of Venezuela, is I need to eat. I need to express myself. And you're talking about principles. So your language and my circumstances are completely different. So... My question is, what is then public philosophy? How then I go about and convey those principles to these people, to the needs of these people? Is there any way by which I can find certain means to convey that? What would be my language to convey that? And I well, think, I already mentioned that to you, Mary, that a principle is a right. cause. I, I understand that. But what I'm saying is that what is the language? What are the words? simple word with which I can explain that to the, the word city. Causes. If you, if you right. don't know what a cause is and an effect is, okay, uh, and you're talking about hunger, uh, well, that's a principle. Uh, right. And it's right. something that's, that's well known uh, from which you can start your reasoning. And your reasoning, the situation the person's talking about is what Aristotle called a genus. You always reason from within a situation, and if your situation, uh, that is your genus, the organizational whole huh, uh, within which you are reasoning and reasoning about, you're, you're, <coughs> you're, you're existing within an organization, and we're constantly shifting back and forth between them. Uh, let me give you a simple example. You have a bunch of firefighters uh, who happen to go out bowling. Uh, now, these are human beings who are firefighters who are also bowlers. As they're bowling, a fire breaks out in the bowling alley. Now they're no longer bowlers. They're firefighters. Uh, they've switched their genus. You constantly, as you just pointed out, to make intelligible to yourself precisely how, how you have to talk about what's going on you have to understand your situation. Your situation is always a genus, a real genus. That real genus is always an organizational whole. So you've got to constantly be asking yourself, what is the organization, the precise organization in which I am now existing uh, more than anything else that's dominating my thought? That's what I'm talking about. Once you forget that that's your situation, right, and you focus attention on a different situation. You start to think about, oh, I've got to get home for dinner tonight, for example, huh? uh, while I'm trying to fight the fire or while I'm trying to bowl. You get distracted. You take, as, as golfers would say, you take your eye off the ball. You don't recognize the connection between the means and the end, and you can't think prudently. You can't make prudent choices. Is, is, I thought it was Mario's point. That's Mario. This is your point that when you're dealing with people who are having to struggle with the very basic needs of life, I can't, you can't really get them to think on this level that we're, at, that we're thinking today. Is, is, that your, is that what you were saying? 
Well, it, it, yes, it is. But not only those people. Uh, so when we are assuming that our language, talk about organization, talk about genus, will be easily understood and absorbed by these people, I think we... I think we are very optimistic. Uh, I disagree with you, Mario. I taught in prison for 10 years. It seems to me there are, there are two worlds. And so the world of the real people in our world as philosophers or intellectuals or whatever you want to call it. And so uh, it seems easy for us to explain that, but I think the explanation is for us. So the needs of those people, whether these are material needs or spiritual needs or political needs, uh, prevent them from understanding our language. I don't and think so that, that. I disagree with that. I taught in prison at Hill um, Correctional Facility. I was assistant director of a prison program for, for 10 years. I also taught in Rikers Island Correctional Facility. Uh, I taught in a philosophy for children program for uh, for about ten years, uh, and uh, all human beings think in terms of definitions. Right? They don't sp specifically or precisely understand that. Okay? Uh, but uh, the uh, uh, you you simply have to have to get them to uh, to, to call attention uh, to uh, uh, to their situation. You have to put it in their language. Uh, as you say, well, they have this situation. Okay, well, the situation is that they're uh, <clears throat> that they're hungry and they have to solve this problem. Huh? Now, uh, when you're in that kind of situation, you don't have the luxury, right, of of reflecting uh, in uh, under peaceful conditions, and it's more difficult. Uh, but it's not impossible. Well, you just have to you just have to start to engage people in conversation, making them conscious of their situation and having them talk about this situation and try to define it. Because they can't solve their problem unless they can first define the genus that they're in. In this case, their situation. How about this uh, to to one and all, uh, leading with Mario. Uh, Perhaps you're there in Caracas, and, and you say, as we know, there are 5,000, give or take a few hundred, 5,000 people a day leaving this country. And the main reason why they're leaving is they can't feed their families. And then you might, uh, under your breath, say, primus vivere, dende filosofari. And, and then you might say something like, uh, we're all human beings here. How is it that we can come together to help one another? Uh, would that get things started? Are, are you asking me? Especially, but anybody is fine. Yeah, well, that's... I'm the one who put you in Caracas, so I'm I'm offering this, this initial uh, uh, entree into the into the context. Uh, we have the gospel. Just a few days ago, uh, the people are hungry. Lord, what are we going to do? Well, that's precisely the, the where Gilson's question comes in, Jim. Uh, 
Okay? Uh-huh. Jilson had it wrong when he said most philosophical mistakes start from badly firm questions. Uh, that's, the, that's the second major mistake. You can't engage in intelligible speech unless you're talking about the same thing. Right? Uh, so so you, have to, you have to recognize that you, you have the same subject, topic, about which you're speaking, or you could say situation about which you're speaking. Then you have to ask the right question. Uh, you have to frame the correct question related to, the que- to, to, to that. Are you talking about it speculatively, practically, productively? Uh, then you can start to make progress. But unless you define your situation first, precisely who am I, where am I, how did I get here, and where am I going, uh, what, do I, what do I want to do, um, you're not going to make any, any uh, progress in conversation. Well, well that's Peter, the, you've recently... That's the real philosophical genus, not the abstract, logical, systematic genus that academic philosophers tend to talk about. That's well, where public maybe philosophy... Maybe this will help, Peter. Peter, you've recently used the expression cultural first principle. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it's a psychological, it's a psychological disposition. It's a psychological habit huh? uh, uh, of, uh, of, um, of talking, uh, 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 of, of engaging in conversation. Right? Uh, the, the ancient Greeks, for example, are dominated by the desire not to be barbarians. Uh, the uh, and and to to recognize that in order not to be barbarians, they have to they have to acquire a higher kind of knowing right? uh, and that uh, um, uh, uh, that uh, will uh, enable them to co- harmoniously to cooperate. Uh, uh, they have to have a certain understanding that there that different qualitatively different kinds of unity exist uh, and that that anarchy right, is something that they want to they want to escape that they fear right? uh, and uh, without that without that cultural first principle that enables these people to understand that they belong to the same organization right uh, and that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're all involved in a cooperative effort of work. Right? You remember Yves Simon's book on work, society, and culture. Right? You can't engage in a common act of work unless you recognize you belong to the same organizational whole. You're not going to be able to, uh, to harmonize your efforts because you're going to be acting at cross-purposes, as Chris indicated at toward the very beginning of our conversation. Okay, listen, I did an airlift of, of uh, Mario to Caracas, and you began by saying we're, we're thinking about our friends and, and colleagues who are going to be uh, marching in Washington. Right. Suppose we do an airlift from Arizona to uh, D.C., and our, our passenger is you, and we drop you off there, and you got two groups of people to talk to. You got the people you're marching with, and you got the people that are heckling you from the sidelines. Do you say anything to the people that are heckling you, or, or not? 
And if you do, uh, no, I wouldn't. Uh, for say? the most part, engage with the people in, uh, that are heckling me. Um, uh, uh, that um, uh, I would either I would either be silent uh, in relationship to them because they're not going to bother me, uh, and they're not receptive in, to, to engaging in conversation. Uh, or uh, uh, if if I if I were, uh, uh, I would uh, I would try to do so uh, with respect to a uh, some sort of a a common. Uh, a, a common uh, organizational uh, uh, principle or situation right? uh, about which you could you could speak harmoniously. Uh, if uh, it's not productive to engage in in conversation with uh, with people who are not receptive to uh, uh, to engaging in it, it's a waste of time. All right, now here. Uh Constantly, oh, how we suffer day in and day out. We in the American Solidarity Party are trying to engage in conversation, both Democrats and Republicans. Should we just give it up, or should we keep at it? What do you say? Now, now yeah, the problem with this is that Democrats and Republicans belong to the same Enlightenment genus, for the most part, and they don't recognize this, huh? Uh, actually, both of them are Democrats. <laughs> if uh, are you saying everyone is a rhino? <laughs> that's right, for the most part, but they don't realize it, okay? <laughs> because because the the principles that they're using for their politics, right, that uh, are, are principles of the Enlightenment. They both buy into the Enlightenment principles, and that's why when push push comes to shove, with respect to to, to uh, the uh, 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 with respect to um, uh, the the most important uh, political issues, uh, Bill Crystal is going to is going to be in, uh, in agreement with Hillary Clinton. <laughs> That's what it's going to wind up being a lot of times. Maybe we so, should put both of them uh, on a lifeboat. <laughs> you you have to you know. Uh, uh, this is why I, I, you know, people very often think that I'm a political conservative, which I'm not. Uh, uh, in uh, in the in the modern sense, I'm a I'm a classical Aristotelian uh, conservative, you might say, uh, or Thomistic. Uh, and I don't think that you're going to solve metaphysical problems uh, politically, uh, unless what you do is resituate the whole debate. That is, is being engaged in politically, in terms of uh, a, a, a metaphysics that understands that metaphysics is a psychological activity. That all philosophy is a form of psychology. That's why Saint Thomas calls science an intellectual virtue. And the, all right, uh, now here, here I, I want to have some test cases. A lot of people. Uh, read the New York Times, at least from time to time, and I skim through it every day, not because I'm a subscriber, but because my brother who lives with us is a subscriber. And uh, there are various people who write for the Times who want to beat up the opposition from the get-go, and usually the opposition is uh, on the so-called ill-defined political right. However, there is a fellow who writes 
at least a couple times a week, and a lot of people read him, David Brooks. Mm-hmm. Very if, good person, yes. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, he uh, he agonizes and agonizes in a, in a pretty humble way. Mm-hmm. And within the last, oh, I try to be uh, accurate here, within the last year and a half in one of his columns, he specifically recognized the contributions of personalists, and he mentioned Jacques Maritain. Now, what should we say about David Brooks? Is he doing good public philosophy? Yes, I, I, I have another example of that. My friend Joel Rosenthal, who's president of the Carnegie Council for, for Ethics and International Affairs in, uh, uh, in New York, of which I was a member for um, a, a number of years. Uh, uh, there are uh, many people uh, in uh, the uh, uh, intellectuals. Uh, Bill Crystal, I think, is you know is similar to that. Um, my friend Herb London uh, was uh, uh, more politically conservative, uh, but uh, uh, and uh, and and. Um, uh, but uh, but he was not a uh, very much a fan of Donald Trump, uh, for example, uh, uh, when Trump first ran for office. But then eventually wrote Trump's speech that he gave in Israel, uh, uh, because uh, uh, her, her is a serious intellectual. Mortimer Adler is a terrific a terrific example of this. A somebody who's a political liberal uh, who uh, is. Um, a, a great uh, serious uh, thinker uh, and uh, uh, Professor Galston uh, is, is another uh, example of people who are who, rec- who recognize who, who, are, who in a sense are philosophical realists right and they belong to the genus you know and they can engage in conversation and these are the people that you have to you have to converse with uh, uh, to, uh, as, uh, you know, in, in, in order to uh, uh, create a public philosophy, uh, a common public philosophy. Uh, you have to get the the leaders of those those groups to be supportive of what you're doing, so you can converse within a, a, the same genus, within the same in relationship to the same subject and organization in the same way. In somewhat the same way, using the same method. Are there I, any? Um, may, may I? May I? Um, yes, I just please. want to return briefly to. I, I hope Mario's. I want to return to Mario's point because I think it was. I think he really was onto something. Um, there's a couple things I, I. We talk about sometimes, like with uh, missionary work, we talk about something called pre-evangelization, or at least they used to talk about pre-evangelization, which would be often to appeal to natural principles um, of the faith. Uh, in order to prepare people for the faith, I should say. I think there's probably maybe something here called pre-philosophy. And um, I think it's right, I mean, I think it's right to say that we naturally think in terms of cause. We're always looking for causes. Um, And I think it's right to say that there's something within human beings that we are looking for, um, what the Greeks were looking for, that we're looking for something which is maybe uh, order and uh, rising above the barbaric state. But there are sometimes hindrances to those things. 
And the, one of those hindrances, I think, could be poverty. You know, you could, you could talk to a person, how do you get yourself, you're, you're poor, you're, your children are starving. You, you know there's a cause for that, and you know there's a, co- there's a way of overcoming that. Well, let's discuss that. But that's, uh, is that, I don't know if that's particularly philosophy. But we have to solve that problem before he can have the leisure to actually um, think philosophically. Right. On, on higher yes, level, you're, yeah, in the search, what, in the what you're talking about is, yeah. this, is, this is why philosophy for the ancient Greeks starts with poetry. Right. And that's what I was thinking, too, with, like with the, um, the American Solidarity Party. When you have a political party, I think one of the important things is, is to get people to pay attention, to, to, look, to look up and say, what these people are saying is something unique. So if you have a platform which actually embodies principles in all different areas, not just like in abortion or same-sex marriage, but in economics and in other areas, of the, in war and the like, people might not you might not be able to immediately discuss with them based upon common principles, but you get them to look up and you get them to ask questions and to say, what is this weird thing? How can you possibly be people who are pro-life or also pro-labor, for instance? Those things don't go together, do they? And that elicits questions, and that elicits a conversation. Right, and you and you don't strictly speaking engage in this conversation on an abstract academic level. uh, the, uh, the the public philosophers are the people uh, like uh, Flannery O'Connor and uh, 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 and um, Gabriel Marcel. Uh, you 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 do it you do it through uh, through music and you do it through uh, through um, a literature. Uh, you, know, you do it through the fine arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't the, the kind of conversation that I'm that I'm talking about uh, uh, where where you're getting people's attention, uh, making them aware of their situation, first has to be done through the fine arts, uh, through the through the liberal the classical liberal arts, uh, before you can do it in more speculative academic ways. You don't you, that approach will as Mario is. Uh, indicating that approach it will fail mm-hmm. because, as he says, the people are hungry. Well, you know, I uh, when I taught in prison, uh, for example, uh, the the works that I used with the inmates, the work that I would start with was Plato's Apology, uh, followed by the, the his Credo, uh, and uh, uh, the Euthyphro, the Phaedo, and the Republic. The first four books of the Republic. Right, uh, Socrates on trial, right, uh, and uh, then Socrates refusing to leave prison. <laughs> uh, his, uh, his his conversation with Euthyphro uh, of, uh, you know, about uh, about piety right, and duty and so forth, uh, and then uh, his, his death scene. Because this is their situation. This is what they, you know, these people are thinking about t- uh, 24 hours a day. Now, some of the brightest students that I had intellectually, people who could not write uh, uh, grammatically, were the, my, the, the most brilliant students that I ever taught. Because they could come up with examples. They could think about ways of looking at issues. Right? Um uh, that uh, uh, totally, uh, totally escaped uh, the uh, the notice of of people whose 
life situation was was much uh, much calmer. One of my one of my the students I had in class uh, was the head of the Chinese mafia uh, in New York. Uh, another one was uh, uh, was in for a double homicide. He was a drug dealer. I had one student from St. John's University who had started at the campus, the St. John's campus in Jamaica, uh, and then transferred to the campus at Arthur Kill Correctional Facility, and uh, uh, he was in the music business, and he was a drug dealer, and he said, Doc, I can sell anything. <laughs> so I couldn't, uh, you know, uh, to engage him in conversation, you have to more or less be able to 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 think analogously right, and put yourself into that kind of situation. But that's, that's where classical philosophical sense realism, like that of Aristotle, where you recognize that the human soul is philosophical first principle. That philosophy is, is not an abstract logic, right? but it's, 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 it's a, a, a psychological habit. Huh? that begins with understanding your situation, which means you're understanding yourself and you're understanding where you are, what you're talking about, and who you're talking to, what's your audience. Then, if you're, this is constantly on your mind, you can adapt to the situation and, and you can have a better understanding of, uh, of precisely... Uh, how you have to uh, converse, talk, talk in that situation. The talk changes. The genus of the talk, the kind of talk you're engaging in, becomes okay, qualitatively let, different. Let me, let me touch base here with our our friend Mario. Has has anything that Peter has said, or has anything that Christopher has said, has has any of it uh, given you? What should I say? More hope for engaging today in downtown Caracas, or are, are you still very skeptical about what they're saying? No, what I'm, um, um, what I have problems there. I, I agree with that. Um, about definition, all that. I agree with that. The issue is whether or not that is public philosophy when you give another example about beginning with art, fine art, beauty, and the like. So how then we make a distinction between what is really public philosophy and another way of awakening the wonder of people so that they can start uh, thinking about their own situation. Um, in other words, we can jump from, um, uh, I don't know, from uh, the example of public philosopher David Brooks to another name, etc. And so we may find a columnist and a teacher and and someone who produced a work of art. And so if all these things are public philosophy, or at least the beginning of a reflection that may lead some people start thinking about the situation, um, uh, 
so to me is well well if if that's what we mean by public philosophy um and if i'm in front of a crowd in uh, in those situations in caracas and so i wouldn't begin with uh showing the heritage of uh, venezuelan art um yes they would understand what causes are and so on but uh, my question is um to what extent or how then go i go about and use my language to explain to them the situation so in this so particular situation situation they explain it to you so part right, of public right. philosophy or, is listening to what the public is saying oh right. yes yeah, well you have it, to get them talk. It seems to me that, that whenever John Paul II visited a country, and especially if he visited a country that was in, in, in terrible turmoil, he would begin by highlighting the best achievements of the cultures of that country, begin by speaking of the riches that the, the country has produced, the cultural riches in particular, that would be shared and, and oftentimes recognized by the people of the country. And, and perhaps that's a, a, a point of access for public philosophy. Let's look at the, the res publica and see what you have done. Now you see what's missing. How, how can we move ahead now? Is it an access to public philosophy or is it public philosophy? Well, Part of uh, teaching philosophy is to talk about what philosophy has done, and so part of well, doing philosophy is philosophy. a cultural enterprise. It's it's yeah. both individual and cultural. It it presupposes a cultural psychology and it presupposes cultural achievements. Huh? So what uh, what Jim is saying is focusing attention, focusing attention on. Uh, the, uh, uh, the personal abilities, huh? uh, the um, uh, habits of excellence uh, that uh, 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 people know about and can identify with their traditions. Uh, you have to recall to the people their traditions and some sort of a greatness about uh, uh, their uh, their own communities um, that uh, their situation is not hopeless uh, uh, because as Aristotle says choice is always of the possible and uh, and you cannot hope for the impossible uh, you can wish you can wish for it you can't choose it you're and and doing philosophy doing science achieving higher forms of knowing qualitatively higher forms of knowing is always a movement from fear to hope. Huh? Uh, the uh, you 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 fear. You're you're afraid of uh, ignorance. Huh? For instance, for the ancient Greeks, you're afraid of being a barbarian. You don't want to become it. Huh? Uh, you fear hunger. Uh, one of my the, my major professor at the, at the university was Jorge Gracia. Uh, Mario knows him very well. He institutionalized the Latin American philosophy in the United States, and uh, he just wrote an autobiography uh, called With a Diamond in My Shoe, uh, 
related to how he rose from being coming to the United States, uh, 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 passing through uh, passing through uh, customs uh, as a, uh, a Jesuit seminarian uh, with no money and and not having no ability to to speak English to converse in English. Uh, and then to master the, the English language, not only master it, but he wound up uh, publishing uh, with SUNY Press over a million dollars worth of books. Uh, this is a, an incredible, an incredible story of someone who is living in that type of uh, that type of condition uh, in, in Venezuela, in Cuba, right? uh, and who luckily was able to escape. From it, with the help of some other people, but uh, uh, it, uh, uh, it 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 drives home the importance of of the 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 need for cultural supports, organizational supports uh, that uh, people can recognize exist around them, and calling attention to them uh, because you have to instill hope. Before you can still philosophical conversation uh, in a, in a formal sense, uh, so you're indirectly doing it uh, uh, through these uh, through these cultural modes. Uh, they uh, they're all uh, in, to some extent of uh, philosophical uh, uh, analogously uh, because they you're moving toward a higher form of learning right? by reflecting on. Uh, on the, your situation, uh, understanding better precisely who you are, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what do you do can we, you know, to, in order to be able to move, move beyond what you're doing. Now, Peter, in a, in a recent paper, you've underscored that uh, philosophy rightly understood, public philosophy, academic philosophy, any philosophy worthy of its name, is at the end of the day in a context in which it's in uh, dialogue with theology. And you've called attention to uh, the, the structure, really, the overall argument of, of Joseph Pieper's uh, uh, leisure, the basis of culture, which is really muses and the muses and culture. And, and you note with him that uh, starting with Greek philosophy, when you do philosophy, you're doing it in the context of of the gods, and we as Christians do it in the context of revelation. Now, somebody might very well argue, a whole lot of my colleagues would argue that, at least in a post-Nietzschean world, there is no such context. And if there is no such context, how is it that we can do philosophy? And if we're doing philosophy in a, a, a society, let's say we're in downtown Moscow, where uh, 3% of the people are believers, uh, what do we do then? Well, once, once again, if you... When you re refer to Pieper, uh, um, uh, Pieper recognizes that all human beings have an, a, a, uh, uh, 
a natural desire that was possessed of a, a, a soul, huh? Uh, that uh, that we we have a um, a natural desire for self understanding, uh, which which presupposes which presupposes that uh, uh, we have some sort of a, a desire for for self knowledge and to, to 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 know the things around us. So we have to we have to accept. That our own speech is intelligible, right? Uh, uh, and that uh, and that we can uh, th- there's some sort of harm- harmony huh? that exists between us and other human beings. That there's some sort of a, of a unity right? uh, that uh, enables enables multitudes that are not inclined by their their own nature to be united to be united. Huh? So. While someone might claim, in in principle, to be an a, to be an atheist, uh, it's impossible to be totally atheistic. Right? Uh, even even Satan can't be a total atheist <laughs> and a total anarchist, huh? uh, because you have to you have to uh, 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 communicate uh, uh, through uh, through an ordered uh, pattern of uh, sounds, uh, which is speech. Uh, so, a person who's a, a person who's a total anarchist uh, is is claiming uh, to to uh, p- be possessed of is a total skeptic is, is claiming to be God in a way uh, is is a claiming claiming to be omniscient uh, uh, and I would. Uh, uh, point out to somebody who's adopting that position that uh, uh, it's uh, that the uh, as a starting point huh? uh, that it, in order to engage in, um, in productive speech um, that uh, you can't uh, take that as an assumption and historically historically with the Greeks uh, uh, with philosophy, philosophy begins with the gods. Uh, it begins with the recognition of the gods because it, it it begins with a recognition that the world is intelligible. Uh, Etienne Gilson, for example, didn't think that the uh, that the for him uh, the existence of God was evident uh, uh, because the world is intelligible, uh, and if if. Uh, uh, if if a god does not exist to separate what is from what is not, uh, being from non-being, everything is a form of non-being. Uh, it's, it's, it makes no sense. Intelligible speech is the foundation for uh, the immediate evidence of the existence of God. Does this apply then to what I, what I take to be the postmodern way, way of thinking, that any kind of argument is, is simply an appeal to power? Yeah, it's all political. That's good. Yeah. yeah, everything. Right. So that's, the enlightenment. That's a, that's a problem. Yeah. Where you yeah, have the to. The enlightenment uh, principle is that uh, yeah, that all speech is political, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which itself is you know it's, it's a self-refuting argument. I find myself thinking of passages in Chesterton's "The Ballad of the White Horse." Uh, where uh, it presents, he presents the, the marauders, 
the Viking marauders as aware at some level of death mm. and having no way to deal with it, they embrace it by by slaughter, and this at least distracts them, a kind of running blindly right. into the void right. by way of By the way, in, in reference to this public philosophy, Jim, you just jogged my memory in thinking about how the, how the ancient Greeks and the Agora had, uh, in Athens, uh, had attracted people to engage in the conversation. This is something we, we've done in our Angelicum Academy. We've noticed happened in our Angelicum Academy Homeschool and Great Books Academy Homeschool programs uh, that um, uh, that uh, it's by listening to people who are engaged in philosophical conversations that people who are in other situations, in an, in existing in another genus, and are focusing, uh, focusing their attention on other organizational problems, huh? uh, they become they want to join in that uh, uh, conversation. Uh, students who are not are in a family who are listening to. Uh, to, to the students in a in a homeschool uh, situation conversing online, uh, here they're brothers and sisters talking about different topics, and it, that attracts them. Jude Darty told me uh, a story years ago about how he would bring in he would bring in to Catholic University uh, in Washington uh, 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 philosophers or artists. Uh, 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 intellectuals uh, from uh, from Europe or you know from different parts of the United States, and they'd be sitting around their dinner table, uh, engaging in conversation. And the kids, kids, kids would be sitting on the stairway listening to what was going on. Uh, so you first have to engage people in this sort of conversation by having other people engaged in the conversation and uh, having other people listening to it. One of the things I noticed when I first went over to Poland and uh, just after the uh, uh, beginning of the 21st century was how philosophical the culture was, Uh, even even in the, uh, uh, you know, uh, just after the, what is, and it's not totally a post-communist time over there. There's still a lot of communists around in charge of different uh, different aspects of, of, of education and politics and so on. But uh, the uh, uh, the way in which there was this this intellectual disposition uh, that pervaded all of their cultural institutions. That was that is distinctively Polish, uh, and uh, that that cultural psychology right, uh, has to be established first. You have to establish the cultural psychology of all of the individuals belonging to the same group, right, sharing the same problems, seeking 
to resolve it and improve the situation. Right? If you can't establish that first, you can't make progress in any kind of organization. You have to develop the psychology within the organization. before. That's what a leader has to do within organizations. Huh? Well, uh, we have to establish this cultural psychology first, which is a moral psychology. We need to uh, turn to our own Catholic tradition and our own Catholic psychology and to do so, we always consult with the doctors of the church, and today we celebrate the feast of one of the doctors of the church, St. Francis de Sales, who certainly was in tune with uh, the spirit and the hearts of the people of his day. And to close our, our discussion today, uh, rather than reading Today's Gospel, which is an enumeration of the calling of the Apostles, I have a short meditation from St. Francis de Sales with which I'd like to close our hour, and I think it's in the spirit of listening and, and thinking through what to say and to whom to listen. Uh, St. Francis de Sales writes, Go forth to do the work for which God has elected you. He will be your right hand, so that no difficulty shall move you. He will hold you by his hand, so that you may walk in his path. So be of great courage, and may your courage endure. And the way to get it is to keep on asking him who alone can give it to you. He will give it to you if you will follow the leading of his grace with a simple heart. May the love, peace, and consolation of the Holy Spirit be in your soul forever. May God bless you as you set forth and where you are now to live as you serve him, as you serve your neighbor, as you humble yourself to your very nothingness, as you lift yourself up to your all. And may God always be your all. Go forth calmly and sweetly in peace to serve God and Our Lady where you have been summoned by their will. And may the grace and consolation of the Holy Spirit be with you forever. Live calmly and simply in God, always loving your own abjection and being courageous in the service of him who died on the cross to save you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We close for today. Okay. Thank you. Hello, God's Beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. 
This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.